Welcome to the 18th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. This show will continue our periodic coverage of the Land Stewardship Project's Farm Beginnings Program. During the past nine years, this program has provided beginning farmers an opportunity to learn firsthand about low-cost, sustainable methods of farming. Farm Beginnings provides guidance on how to get a profitable operation up and running. But as any farmer knows, raising top-quality produce or livestock products isn't enough. If you can't sell those products at a profitable price, your farming days are numbered. That's why a major focus of the Farm Beginnings curriculum is on marketing. Participants learn from other farmers, as well as marketing professionals, about how to utilize innovative marketing methods to differentiate their products and sell them at prices that reward them fairly for all their hard work. Farm Beginnings is based on the philosophy that people learn best from others who have actually gone out and gotten their hands dirty. That's why Prescott Berg and Juliet Tompkins are a perfect combination when it comes to talking about marketing. They own and operate Four Winds Farm, a grass-based beef operation near River Falls, Wisconsin. They market their beef directly to consumers as well as to restaurants, so they have plenty of real-world experience when it comes to getting a good price for their product. In addition, Berg works for an organic ingredients company, so he has a lot of big-picture professional marketing experience under his belt. Let's listen in on an excerpt of a recent Intro to Marketing presentation Tompkins and Berg gave to a Farm Beginnings class. So I think one of the things I want to start off with, first of all, is to clarify marketing versus advertising versus selling, because I think people who don't do it all the time oftentimes kind of throw them in a trash heap together. Marketing is sort of everything you do to find your customers and to get them to know you exist. You know, advertising is one of those things you do. It's part of marketing. It's not. It is not marketing. And selling is what you do when you finally get the customer to your booth, to your farm stand, to your door, or at their door, wherever, wherever you interface on the internet, whatever it might be. So, um, I just want to clarify that, I guess, because I think sometimes that gets confused. But you know, the marketing really is having having the right product, and you're you're all going to decide what the right product is for you. Um, at the right price, and again, that's something you will decide in, in, as you go through your market research. Uh, at the right place, now that may be on your farm because everybody wants to come out and see your farm and it's part of the package, which is sort of part of what we do, uh, or it may be delivery to their door. And with the right promotion, and the promotion can accomplish, it's not just you know, handing out plastic widgets. Um, it can be anything from the packaging, it can be the location, it can be the time of delivery, it can be the way you deliver it, uh, the way they pay for it. I mean, it could be a, a myriad of things. Um, and I think it's important for you to think about as you're planning your marketing is what are your, your points you're going to compete on? Because Walmart competes on price, and if you're going to try to beat Walmart, you better have really deep pockets. Um, on the other hand, somebody like Neiman Marcus, you know, competes on quality, and you know there there are people um, in between that compete on primarily on service, and you can do two of those three, but you can't do all three of them because you can't provide the best quality and buy a service at the least price. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> people try, but they don't last very long. So. I think if you think of those three things as a triangle, and any two of them on the bottom will be fairly stable. 
you know, you got to figure out what, what those two things are that really create your, your foundation. Um, and then, really, I think you, you know, you're the one who's going to have to, there, there are lots of tools out there for you to use, but you have to, to figure out um, what you're going to do. And there's, there's several pieces of it, you know. And, you know, I'm going to talk about general ideas, but, you know, you have, you obviously, part of this class, and part of what you're all trying to figure out is what is your product. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But as you define your, your product, you have to figure out who is your target market. And I'm just going to use, I brought, I just grabbed a few of the publications that I get in my day-to-day -day work um, to use as examples. Um, I work for a food ingredient company. We import food ingredients. We import organic shortening as an example. <clears throat> shortening is shortening is shortening. It's been around for, you know, 100 years or whatever, you know, lard before that. Part of our target audience are um, research and development people because one of the things that's happening in the food industry, you may or may not have heard about, is that anything that has saturated fat levels have to be on label starting um, this month, January 2006. So in order to get our products in front of um, food R&D people, you know, food product design for me is a really good magazine. And that's one of the way things that, that I try to get in. Now, um, so part of my, my target market for what I do in my 8 to 5 job is food R&D and purchasing managers. And it's a lot easier to get it in when they're working in their kitchen and developing a product because then you're into the formula. And then when it goes to purchasing, you're not knocking on the door later on. So that's this is one of my key, key magazines. And I'm going to pass these around. I'd like to get them back. But just to give you an idea, or maybe I'll put them out because they get distracting, you know, of trying to determine who your target market is. And there are, I don't know how many publications out there on the newsstands. There's thousands or tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands. One of those, or several of those, or maybe websites or blogs, or are going to help you. You know, there, there's going to be something there for your target market. You know, the New Skydivers Association or whatever it is. I mean, I, just, I don't even know what your target market is, but um, you know, then, then what are you going to sell them? And, and I think it's important to think about both product and service because it could be either one. And I think. One of the things you'll find out that if you're in the food business is people will generally pay more for things that they can't eat than what they can. They'll pay more for flowers than they will for steaks. You know, it just it just works that way. And so, obviously, if, the, if we get a real economic crunch, they're still going to buy the steaks, maybe they won't buy the flowers. But in general, your margins are going to be better on something that is maybe a little bit less tangible. Um, what is your objective? What's your goal? I mean, are you, you know, for us, we market very locally, and Juliet will talk about that, you know, or maybe you want to be the next Hormel. I mean, I don't know. It could be anywhere in between. But what is your objective? How much money do you have or, and, you know, to, to work with? What tools do you plan to use? We're going to talk about those quite a lot. And then how are you going to measure your success at your marketing? So... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the assumption that you have some product in mind or some service. I'm guessing everybody here has something. I don't know what, what it is, but um, what I'd like you to do is think of broaden what you have. Um, you know, what are your resources? They're beyond just a particular product. You know, like for us, you know, we, the farm that we bought I'm gonna, is, is 107 acres 
it wasn't big enough to be a productive farm, and it was sort of high hill country and, and eroded. Um, so most of the neighbors really weren't interested. It turns out that it has 12 acres of native prairie on it, which to the neighbors at that time really didn't mean anything. But if you're trying to sell grass to or, you know, organic beef to environmentally conscious people, that becomes a draw. So it wasn't a resource for them, it's a resource for us. We didn't know it was there really when we bought it, it was lucky. Um, but we've been able to develop other resources like the wild rice and the ponds as part of our our package of value in the sense that people get. So the place becomes part of it. Um, and I really, you know, just I want you to think about that location. Obviously, if you're expecting people to come to you, it's really critical. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, Martin Diffley, Gardens of Egan, some of you may know him down in Dakota County, you know, he saw our farm when we first moved there. He said, you're going to starve. You know, we weren't on a main road. And he was a vegetable producer, and for him, he needed 30,000 cars a day or whatever going by to sell vegetables. That's what he needed. It was part of his requirement for his type of, of marketing. Um, what kind of space do you have on your land you have or thinking about? You know, do you have a big barn? Do you host barn dances? Can you host conferences? You know, what can you do with what, you, what you've got? Uh, and then what are your own interests? You know, because if you're not interested and you don't like doing it, it doesn't matter how profitable it is. That's probably why most of you are there anyway. You're doing something that you don't quite like as much as you anticipate you'd like farming, which is great. Um, and then in terms of just growing crops, I think there's, uh, <coughs> it is eventually in agriculture, everything becomes commodified. It really, it just happens. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, we're seeing the commodification of organic agriculture in the sense that um, uh, you know, there's still a huge demand. The growth rate is up, but you have huge people like Dean Foods coming in and owning uh, the largest organic dairy in the United States. And, you know, they, they're able to outbid a cooperative like Organic Valley for organic dairy farmers. Organic Valley is a cooperative. They're members or their owners. But Horizon comes along and offers an extra $40,000 a year to buy their milk. It's tough for those people to resist. So um, the commodification is going to happen, and you're, you know, what you have to think about is how are you going to avoid that happening, or can you be small enough to fly under the radar, or, or how are you going to do that? But think about growing crops differently. You know, it could be organic, it could be ID, IPM, identity preserved, uh, local, uh, you know, see bird-friendly coffee now, you know, the shade-grown coffee, and, and that's another way to do it. Um, adding value, uh, reducing your costs, which is something that historically is what agriculture has done, which I think is why we're losing so many people, because eventually you make it so efficient and unprofitable that nobody wants to do it. Um, you know, you can market something else other than what you originally were thinking about, or you can just do something else. You know, it really is what it comes down to. So I think I'd like you to just think about those aspects as you're putting your marketing plan together. So... I'm going to turn it over to Juliet, and she's going to talk to you uh, a little bit about our history. Yeah. Essentially where we, <clears throat> not to make it sound like we got to the farm, we knew what we were going to do, and sort of it took off and we were, you know, a linear direction. We have been very circuitous in our, in our uh, getting to our end goal of actually now producing grass-fed beef. We initially had bought the farm, um, now going on 20 years ago, um, could see that it was rolling, as Prescott described, 
but didn't know exactly what type of crop, what type of livestock it could handle the best. So we gave our, our essentially several years of trying things, probably 10 years actually, trying different things on the farm. We've got, we initially got um, thought that livestock would be an option, and we both were interested in it, perhaps myself more than Prescott, and so we got, we we uh, fenced it for uh, pasture and started backgrounding heifers, essentially repla raising replacement heifers or somebody else. So a way to get into it with the investment of the fencing, get into it with the, um, uh, not ha but not having to have the expense of actually buying the animals ourselves and just having them seasonally. Um, so we had that experience initially and realized that we, raising the beef was something that we did like to do. We also thought we would need to complement that with some other things. We started at one, one point we started raising organic soybeans because we thought that might be an option for us. Um, that had, we probably did that for at least two, three years and realized we didn't have a land base sufficient to do that. Our soil, I should, so should mention too, is, is particularly poor and that it had been depleted of, of its soil, of its natural fertility by 20 years of year-to-year -year cropping of so, uh, corn and soybeans without any manure going back on. The, far, the previous farmers only had a year-to-year -year lease, so there wasn't a lot of incentive to take their precious manure onto our land. They instead kept it on their own land. So it was completely what they call a poor farm, I guess. Um, so recognizing that, we saw that the crops were not doing very well. We weren't about to add a lot of fertilizer. So we we sort of came down on a convergence of grass. It grew really great grass. <laughs> it wasn't very uh, varied. It wasn't very varied. It, there wasn't a lot of different um, species in the pastures, but uh, we knew we could improve that over time. So we, having kept the, the beef cattle on all along, we started off with four animals, continued to keep back the... Um, the heifers and maintaining a closed herd. We never bought any more than the four animals, and now we're up to a herd of 60 after going on 14 years. Um, just selling off the beef, the steers each year, um, except for now we've gotten up to the point where we'll sell heifers as well. So just rid our reached our maximum of what we figure we can handle. Maybe overshot a little bit in terms of what the land base can handle. We don't have enough land base to raise our own hay, and we're realizing in our neck of the woods uh, that's uh, a major detriment because we're having to pay a lot of money for hay. It's not even organic hay, but we're still paying significantly more money than we would if we were to be raising it ourselves. Um, granted, if we had, we'd had the expense of purchasing the equipment. So we're at this place right now where we have to do, do this analysis if we can, if we can sustain these this number of animals that we know our grasses can sustain. We can raise enough grass in order to maintain a herd of 60 in the year, but we still have to purchase hay, which means that we have this very large hay bill each year. We, uh, our first original goal, as Prescott has mentioned, you know, figure out what your goal is, what you want to be doing with your farm, what you want to be doing with your lives. Our first goal was to get both of us no longer working off the farm and only working on the farm and earning all of our income. That was about, well, it was what we did with the, the uh, whole farm whole farm plan. One of the, we were one of the initial uh, individuals that went, groups that went through that whole farm. I'm not giving the right holistic team, research. Holistic research, yeah, holistic research management or planning. And so we came out of that training of over several weeks, deciding that that's what we wanted to do. Um, and our goal was then to have the grass-fed beef, and then we thought we need to complement that with other animals. So we tried a year of raising broiler chickens. 
uh, thinking, well, people always like chicken, and they really like good chicken, so they will, if they come to buy the chicken, they'll want some meat, they'll want some beef also. Um, we put a lot of time and energy into that. We raised great chicken. You could not have paid me enough for that chicken. <laughs> um, and we did it one of the harder ways, the Joel Salatin method of moving those cages every day. Um, it, it did raise wonderful chicken, and people came all the way. Well, we're on River Falls. It's 20 miles east of St. Paul. People were coming from Edina to come to our farm to purchase the chickens, and they loved it. Um, but it wasn't sustainable for us. We recognized that. Uh, subsequently, we tried also raising pigs for five years, feeling again that if we complemented our beef uh, operation and offered a few more types of meats that we would again be able to have enough income from the farm in order to be able to support both of us and our family. We have two children. Question. When you said the chickens weren't sustainable for you, did that mean that you needed greater diversity or there, there weren't enough people coming or you couldn't deal with that much chicken? Great question. Okay. What, what did you mean by that? What did I mean by that? I, I meant my back. <laughs> um, it, it was a, a variety of things. Our farm, and I'm mentioning all this, and I hope you just keep thinking she's talking about her farm so that I should think of my place or my future, my visionary place, had no infrastructure for handling feeds. So all of our feed, we either had to have it buy it ground so we received it for someone we had to store it somewhere we didn't have adequate storage so you know so we had to get it in sacks and then something would get rained on so that was part of the unsustainability we recognized that we needed some infrastructure there which meant capital expense to, to put into place to make it so that we could do it easily isn't the right word with farming but make it do it so you can you know that's efficient essentially so that was part of it um, the method that we chose, which was the, the, the Joel Salatin method of the chicken tractors, where you, those who don't know, you build a pen and the chickens go in that, into that space, about 50 to, a, 50 to a pen, after you've had them under a brooding, um, going like this, brooding, brooder. brooder, yes, thank you. It's been a long time, obviously, since I've raised chickens. Um, uh, that process in raising them in those pens, we found we our soil, our land is not flat like it seems to be in West Virginia where he is. So that we are going up, you know, up hills, ever so slight a grade, but with a water tank on top and everything, and the chickens that go backwards and then get run over and then die because they're in shock or whatever. It was a lot of labor. It was a lot. I mean to say, in long, but it was a lot of labor, and it was. Uh, we now know that there's a way we could do it, and we've talked with other farmers who have adapted that method, and I, I su totally support grazing chickens. I think they should be outside and, and on having, being free-range or as protected as they need to be from, from varmints that might kill them. But um, that particular method was not sustainable for us, so on a labor basis. So it's the capital infrastructure and also just labor. Um, we So we had, had decided, other question, sorry. You said we now know well, I don't know if we have chicken raisers here. The people that I've talked to have found that they can establish a central chicken house, and then they move the in this. And I, this is what I've seen uh, or had described to me. They have that centrally located, and then they they move the chickens through kind of a wedge pattern out around the house. So the chicken set that the chicken the thing that I was moving would stay in one location, or maybe move twice a season. But you could move the chickens and still give them fresh range in this in this um, press, you know, it's in a pattern, a wedge pattern going around it. Um, so they, yeah. So that's a, that, or or a, a larger house that maybe you move the tractor and move once a week, as opposed to trying to do it every day. Okay. Uh, 
So we had, had decided again that if we were to do um, to complement or to diversify, essentially not be relying just on our, our beef herd, which was growing, growing, but ever so slowly, that we would uh, enlarge into hogs. <laughs> and uh, our 12-year-old, or actually it was nine at the time, nine-year-old son expressed an interest in this. And so it was sort of an enterprise for, for him that we supported him in. Um, and our goal there, we set our goal at raising, finishing 150 hogs on our farm um, and marketing them directly to restaurants and to individuals who would buy bacon and brats at our farm, our stand at farmer's markets, et cetera. Well, we did that. We attained that goal. We, we set it out. We bought our first sow, and she had her piglets, and then multiplied, multiplied, multiplied to the point that we were actually able to offer pork year-round, which was our goal, which meant farrowing in a hoop building, so it was structured, not, not heated, hoop building in the middle of winter. Of course, the years that we did it, it was the coldest winters. We didn't have nice winters like this year. Um, so we had difficulties with that. We, we maintained our birth rates and as well as, as um, keeping the piglets alive, but still struggled with that. We did build a building, so we went so far as to, for, to have the hoop building as an infrastructure. But again, we got to our, our goal of the 150 animals, which the restaurants were loving them. We sold to several high-end restaurants in the cities um, and then sold to, through the farmer's market. Like I said, they love the product, uh, but we had to look at it again and to see if it was a sustainable system for us. We had also no infrastructure. We had, we had a grain bin. Um, so that we could bring in parts of the <laughs> hog feed, but then ended up having to, to grind it every two to three days for that many mouths. And it got to the point where we had we need to make a decision whether we were going to be able to say, sustain the way we were doing it uh, without a major capital um, infrastructure, um, in, incorporation of infrastructure. So we made that a uh, yes, question. Did you find the restaurants and stuff ahead of time so that you would be able to sell? I mean, or did you just find them as you grew? As you grew? Uh, the latter. It was, we really found them as we grew. We started with uh, one animal, and so we were growing pretty slowly. Well, I should say slowly. Pigs multiply so much faster than cows. So within f three years, we were have quantity, We had quantity that was in excess of what we could sell through the farmer's markets. And it happened to dovetail with a friend of a friend, word of mouth. You know, his son had owned a restaurant in the cities, and they would love to support local producers. And so we happened to come across that person in that restaurant, then referred us to another restaurant. And between the two, we had all that we could use. I would encourage you to find the restaurants ahead of time. I think it would it would be, you probably sleep better at night for one. Um, and I think you know your market you're getting into. You could do some special, either custom cutting for them or raising for them. It worked for us to do it the way we did it, but I, I wouldn't say from a planning perspective that I would encourage you to do it that way. Uh, we got to that point then where we need to decide whether we were going to take out that huge loan to put in the grain handling system, essentially, and decided that, no, we, didn't, we weren't ready to make that investment. And simultaneously, Prescott's job changed. Um, he was liking his work more. I started to work at the university part-time. And it's sort of this convergence where we had to revisit our goal. Did we still want to be worth working off the farm and earning our sole income off the farm? And we... It, Subconsciously or, or or consciously, we I can't remember a meeting where we sat down and said, "No, we're not going to change this goal," but but I think we essentially evolved to decide that we were going to keep farming. We wanted to keep farming, but we wanted to continue to do it part time, which for us meant not raising pigs because they are very quite labor intensive, and yes, raising the grass fed beef. And so now we're in a place where we 
do raise all our beef. We do direct market all of it. Um, we're starting to explore, as I explained, with, with the issues of maintaining the herd that we have, whether we need to cut back or not, and maybe we need to be a little more selective in, in the types of essentially what we're selling, maybe just sell the heifers after the first year to be fed out somewhere else as opposed to trying to keep them through another winter, fine-tuning it that way. That's where essentially we are right now. Um, do, 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 do. So I guess that is all to say is sort of a, uh, a um, anecdotal uh, rendition of what's happened at our farm, but I would say in terms of making these decisions of what you're going to market, make sure you're choosing something that you really love to do. You may have heard this from other people before, but um, those hours get long and when things go, especially when things are going wrong, and you can sustain that if you're, if you're really enjoying it. Um, but if it's something you feel like you're not, maybe your spouse is into, but you're not so into, just figure out how you're going to how you're going to work that, how, how you're going to both maintain the long haul of it. Uh, and I guess the other thing would be just to understand how much time you want to be dedicating towards this in terms of the production and then what you're willing to do in terms of marketing. Um, I would think it's, I'd say, I will safely say I don't feel like I spend enough time on marketing. I love being, working with the cows and I would go out and work with the cows well before I'd make five phone calls to sell meat. And Here's my when I when I told Laura that I would do this talk, I said I'm going to give you the the hard parts too. You know, um, it's it's hard to do that marketing. So um, I I'll be the first to admit that I I have my pitfalls, and I know what I love to do more than I like to do the marketing, and that's you know what I just want you to seriously think of that and think of what you feel naturally good at and what you love to do and what you would rather pass along to someone else. Farm Beginnings is currently taking applications for its next series of classes, which convene each fall and last through the winter. The program is also offering a series of on-farm educational tours this spring and summer. Some of them are open to the public, providing an excellent opportunity to see successful, sustainable farming in action. We should also remind you that Farm Beginnings has recently expanded out of Minnesota and now has programs in Missouri, Nebraska, and Illinois. For more information, see www.farmbeginnings.org. That's www.farmbeginnings.org. For more on Four Winds Farm, see www.localharvest.org backslash farms backslash M491. That's www.localharvest.org backslash farms backslash M491. Send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also give me a call at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSB staffer who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.